Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Tonight's talk is on existential well-being. And what is that? What the hell is he talking about? Existential well-being is a uh, cultivating a meaning for life which in some way not only gives life a coherence, a sense of a purpose, but also is a coping resource that can help us address disillusionment, depression, is a conduit to inner peace. Existential well-being is essentially the cognitive part of a spiritual path. We change the way we frame the reason we're alive. A lot of Buddhist practice is right-brained, non-cognitive, heartfelt, uh, experiential, but there are two hemispheres for the brain, and the way we interpret life is very important. Certainly, uh, it plays a significant role in perspective, uh, appropriate priorities, and I'll be talking about that uh, throughout this talk. So it's very common for when people start to... uh, investigate or make inquiries as to what they believe the true purpose of their life is, for it in some way to be triggered or activated, in some way instigated by a experience of mortality, loss, losing someone that's important. It certainly in the Buddha's life, it played the most significant role in encouraging his spiritual practice. The Buddha was living a very comfortable life. By all accounts, he was born into a very wealthy, powerful family, had a lot of, as we would say today, privilege. He was not, uh, he didn't have to work if he didn't want to. He lived surrounded by creature comforts and uh, a, a great financial ease until through a sequence of events deeply embedded in the Buddhist mythology, the Buddha was directly faced with old age sickness and death. He saw it up close. He realized that his life was not authentic because he was living as if he had a guaranteed amount of time that he could put off thinking about how death could happen. Uh, without warning. Sickness could happen at any time, and he had not taken those facts into account in how he lived his life. As he said, when I was rich and surrounded with beautiful objects and people, I lived in ignorance, oblivious to the fact that I too would die. And for the Buddha, that was a life of delusion. He was not living in the truth, which is acknowledging one of the most important facts of human existence is that we all know that we are mortal. The Buddha was not alone in having a 
direct confrontation with mortality activate a spiritual inquiry? For the Buddha, he left home. He went to study with various teachers, Uttaka Ramaputra, Akila Kalamas, etc. He studied yoga and Hindu meditations and uh, the jhanas and basically uh, turned his back on the way he was living, which was essentially enjoying the creature comforts, the pleasures, the sense objects, whatever was surrounding him he was enjoying. And, but it, it, he, it wasn't creating any sense of meaning or purpose for his existence. And that's what happens when we are thrust up against loss, death, the lack of guarantee that we have. Abraham Maslow, one of my heroes, a great uh, psychologist, uh, one who proposed the hierarchy of needs, uh, basically noted that to live a self-actualized life, which for, in Maslow speak is an authentic life, one requires a confrontation with tragedy or loss because it's not easy to reprioritize one's endeavors away from all that is cherished and reified and advertised in the world around us, which is, of course, seeking the next best thing, chasing after this or that pleasure or object, the fruitless chase after financial security and so forth. It's very difficult to go against the stream and prioritize some of the, uh, or at least do the investigation as knowing I too will die, what is important to me, given that, that truth. Heidegger, who was the greatest existentialist philosopher, also a bit of a Nazi, can't get, nobody's perfect, I guess. As a, as a Jewish Buddhist, that's a big one for me to swallow, but I'll go ahead with it anyway. He wrote Being in Time, a very important existentialist philosopher, and in that unreadable book, he proposed that um, we live wholly inauthentic lives until we, um, if we don't weigh mortality into our choices and actions, until we have a brush with our mortality, we will live essentially conformist lives where we will do what has been modeled for us. The, the human mind is deeply malleable to what is modeled for us in family systems, cultural structures, and so forth. So what we see, we tend to imitate. And this is uh, even important psychologists like Bandura talk about how to not live and follow and mimic and copy what everybody else around us is doing requires a significant, almost, dare I say, traumatic jolt or some kind of experience which overrides all that we have seen and has been presented to us as the truth. The Buddha said mindfulness of one's death when practice is essential. It's the foundation for any spiritual liberation. That's in his Maranasati Sutta. So essentially without having some reflection on it, it's very unlikely that we will, one, take the time to investigate what's really deeply important, what makes life have any sense to us, and two, 
it's very unlikely that we'll prioritize those things and act on them because if you don't realize that you, we have no guarantees, it's very easy to put off all the things that really matter uh, for us. Up until the middle 19th century, when there was the growth spurt of hospitals around Europe and America, death was pretty much everywhere. I was reading an uh, online uh, book, I think it was. It was called uh, Death and Dying in Early Modern Europe. Yes, that's the kind of <laughs> book. I'm not a goth, but I was reading that for this talk. <laughs> And in it, they were, the author was talking about how pretty much death was an everyday occurrence. Because there wasn't hospitals until roughly around, let's say, 160 years ago, where there's, it started to be a regular occurrence that people would die away from the home, most people would die in a household surrounded by family members. And so either you or someone you knew very closely would have somebody at their house, essentially in their um, the last stages of their life. It was very, very normal to be at someone's deathbed. It was very, very normal to be present when someone died. Today, that's... Uh, uh, if you don't work as a hospice worker or in a hospital or a first responder, you're probably not going to see it that often. Uh, I actually, due to circumstances in my family life, my mom passed away very, very slowly of a terminal illness where she was in a hospice for a very long time. So I saw it every week for years on end. It was a, just a regular occurrence in my life, and that's why I wound up, for the last 11 years, volunteering, teaching, hospice training, and being involved in that. So, um, because death was everywhere, it was considered by people, and it was very common for it to be the content, the focal content of the arts. Dance macabre, memento mori paintings, where literally you'd go into somebody's household and there would be painting of a skull with a candle and uh, some fruit and some object. And the, the art was there to remind people, if they didn't already know that well enough, that their time was limited. We are all subject to death. So the imminence of mortality required its consideration in life, and it was therefore one of the daily reflections that people would use to make decisions. Today, not so much. Not only is death really hidden, but um, it's understandable that we are disinclined to consider it when we make choices and decisions. Death triggers some of the great anxieties that most people wrestle with. The, the separation anxiety is one of the earliest anxieties that we have as human beings, which is being separated from those we love. In many ways, that's more terrifying than the actual unknown of death. There's the anxiety of loss of autonomy, which is the ability to take care of oneself, to be mobile, 
the possibility of entering a stage of life where we are wholly dependent on others. There's the anxiety, of course, of pain. So thinking about death can uh, produce um, or incur a, a feeling of dread. And so we don't like to even bring it in to our the process with, it, with, with which we make choices in our life. And yet that's so vitally essential without weighing mortality into any decision, that decision is, in essence, uh, an incomplete. It's a decision that is not made with uh, really weighing all of the facts that deserve reflection when we make important choices. Where to live, what kind of work to do with our lives, what kind of activities to pursue, whether to stay in relationships or not. All of the most important choices, I think, require acknowledgement of how fleeting and vulnerable life is. I was looking at a bunch of psycho-oncology clinical studies. Psycho-oncology is the study of how cancer patients cope with their diagnosis and so there was a bunch of papers, spiritual thoughts, coping, and a sense of coherence in patience by Strang and Strang, making sense by Allensworth and Chambers, social, psychological, existential well-being in patience. All these papers were kind of the same, but I just kind of like looking over them. They all pretty much pointed to a couple of really interesting conclusions. Patients reflect on the purpose or what gives their life meaning to give them a coping resource to deal with stress and deal with depression. And many patients subsequently stated how they wish that they had known to do this for their diagnosis, essentially made it requisite. It helps regulate stress to have a sense of why we're alive, what purpose we are meant to fulfill. It adds, um, again, as I said earlier, that sense of coherence, which alleviates depression, alleviates uh, disillusionment, a feeling of uh, lack of vitality. As one paper uh, concluded, meaningfulness is central for one's quality of life. The sense of coherence it creates reduces stress and it integrates our life with our spirituality. So, uh, in early Buddhism, this inquiry of why I'm alive is often triggered, as the Buddha said, by this feeling called Samwega, which is this feeling of this discomfort of recognizing that our priorities have not been what they should be. By which I mean the activities that I'm doing, the thoughts that I'm focusing on, the issues I'm concerned with, the conflicts and dramas that have uh, in some way shepherded my attention, 
have in some way drifted far off course from that which is really truly important that makes me feel happiest, that makes me feel most peaceful, that makes me feel a greatest sense of pride and esteem for my activities, that makes me feel my life has been lived in a way that I wanted it to be lived. We can very easily, uh, day by day, drift very, very far off course if we don't uh, do these reflections. Now, in a capitalist system, guess what? That's what we're in. Uh, when people do a sort of gut check on what gives their life meaning or any kind of sustained inquiry after a brush with mortality or loss, in our culture, we of course, or I should say the, the capitalist system, of course, reifies the bucket list. The bucket list is consumerism masked as spirituality. It's this idea that if you're missing something, you've got to buy a ticket, you've got to pay for a big experience, you've got to go skydiving, you've got to go to Machu Picchu, Burning Man. You've always wanted to go to Burning Man. This will give life meaning. And of course, um, while that all sounds very nice and it appeals to the part of the mind that uh, the dopaminergic systems that are based on trying to solve life by acquiring or attaining. It's very nice to believe that all we need to do is purchase, acquire, uh, have some experience, and that will create a sense of fulfillment and a sense of meaning. But actually, if you've done any hospice work, if you've read any of the clinical literature on um, what people, uh, what wisdom is cultivated uh, in uh, people at end-of-life stages, what we find is that bucket lists and such things are actually not as important as they're advertised. What people talk about is, uh, uh, there's four themes I've found, and I want you to note that all of these do not require spending a lot. They don't require very often even making huge substantive changes in the sense of um, immediately going out and quitting your job, if that gives your life some sense of security. But what it does ask is that we start prioritizing activities that are available to us right here, right now in our life that we often forget. The first theme that people talk about is the importance of putting aside planning, future concerns, worrying about events that are wholly outside of our control, and the essential import of living right here, right now as a diligent practice, and what that means is embracing with a sense of gratitude all of the capabilities that we have right now in our life, because they are all subject to disintegration. While we have our ability to be mobile, to hear things clearly, to see the world clearly, to uh, enjoy 
whatever stage of ability our bodies are in, to really truly cherish it, to not take it for granted. This is so deeply important to have any sense of life being fulfilling and meaningful and worthwhile. Number two is the, uh, the import of connecting with one's core support group, which are the people who care and love us and accept us for who we are, people that are, uh, reduce our emotional isolation and alleviate vulnerability when we feel overwhelmed or confused or can help us uh, just process life how vitally important it is to stay close to loved ones and to always bear in these things in mind when new opportunities arise in life. Will this opportunity take me away from the loved? Will this opportunity make it difficult for me to cherish and appreciate and take time to embrace my life as it is? Number three, altruism a sense of a legacy of one's life having had some meaning is that sense that we have um, spent a significant time helping others. the brain has, as we know from the work of Lieberman and Eisenberger, and I mention them so often, but their research, uh, their cognitive neuroscience is so uh, uh, interesting and important. We have social circuits in the brains, uh, regions that are deeply embedded in the anterior cingulate cortex that reward us with feelings of well-being and pride when we take pro-social actions. And when we don't, when we don't consider other people, when we don't consider others' well-being and make that a, um, move it up in the hierarchy of goals in our life, then there is a feelings of worthlessness, lack of esteem, lack of meaning. Human beings are social beings. The vast bulk of Our species' existence was spent in very small hunter-gatherer tribes and collectives. It's been, through natural selection, deeply hardwired into us that our lives are only purposeful to the degree that we are in some way giving back. Number four is the import of honest disclosure, the necessity to be creative and express oneself to be truly known by others, to not hold back. This is a group that doesn't only include when somebody asks you, how are you doing, refusing to say fine, putting, taking fine utterly out of your vocabulary, even if that's all that comes to mind, and lean into reporting the most recent awkward emotion that you felt. To be known, to be experienced, to be seen, because that's what from childhood on not not only makes us feel secure, but makes us feel happy and in some way uh, safe in the world. 
It, I think it also requires pushing ourselves to be creative, to have that creative outlet where parts of ourselves that have been pushed away, we've edited out because we don't believe these parts are lovable, that others will accept them, to integrate whether through writing or art or dance or music or something, have some outlet that uh, makes our life, makes ourselves feel that we have been, uh, we have not hid ourselves from life, that we have not compartmentalized deep emotions that earlier on in life were not well received. So, to summarize those, being fully embracing life in the here and now, connecting with loved ones, giving back pro-tribal actions and honest disclosure. So, um, to read a small quote that I found very moving by a guy named Paul Kalanithi, who wrote a book, When Breath Becomes Air. He was a neuroscience who, uh, quite unexpectedly, uh, when he seemingly was healthy and had never smoked, was given a, a terminal lung cancer diagnosis, and he wrote a wonderful book uh, in that process before he died in 2016. And he said, the tricky part of a mortal Ill illness is that as you go through it, your values constantly change. You may decide you want to spend your time working as a neurosurgeon. That was before the diagnosis, but two months later, you only want to learn to play the saxophone or devote yourself to your church. So what he's basically saying is that up until that diagnosis, his life had skewed, even though he was living and working as a neuroscience and saving lives, he had not prioritized his life to express and integrate deep needs. And so the goal of tonight is to introduce what the Buddha called Marana Sati, a reflection practice where we can, we don't have to experience mortality or loss, but we can regularly check in and ask ourselves, what is really important to me? What is vital? What do I need to take into consideration? The Buddha said, in the Maranasati practice to, and he went a little overboard here, but he said, it's not enough to do this every day. It's appropriate to do this with every breath. Now, I don't know that I'm going to encourage you to do that. I don't know that I even say every day, but I do this practice every week. I think that for me, it played a, I don't think, I know it played a vital role in my life about 17 years ago, uh, right when my mother was in this process of slowly perishing from MS, and there was 9-11, um, there was uh, right in front of me this huge events that made it so clear that uh, of life's fragility and the different shapes that existence could take. And um, I started really doing these reflections as well because I wanted to push myself to 
I was feeling a great deficit of purpose and meaning in my life. I wasn't feeling that I was uh, achieving anything that would make my life feel um, that it was a life that I had really wanted to live. Um, I felt a great degree of emptiness uh, in my life, depression. Uh, I was working, so I was working in advertising, go figure. Um, but um, through doing a lot of these reflections, it became very clear that I, my work in no way was fulfilling those um, altruistic needs of giving back, of helping, of seeing my life's uh, activities in some way benefiting others. That was the missing piece. And so I very slowly started determining that I would work less and start prioritizing practice much more central in my life, volunteering at a Buddhist center, um, uh, studying, taking uh, training with teachers and so forth. And it was a very gradual process, but even the most slight change in a ship's direction over time can lead to a really substantive course correction. And uh, in literally about seven years, I stopped working entirely in advertising, and I was do, spending my life volunte volunteering, teaching, living by donations. It was a bizarre choice, but... Every bit along the way, it was propelled by a realization that um, I had to pursue that which was going to give my life a sense of meaning and um, some, something that I would feel good about when I reflected on my life. And I've never regretted it, not a day. Um, yeah, so... Um, the work has to be an integration of both cognitive and heart. Um, and when we come across that un understandings of what makes our life feel valuable or uh, worthy to us, we have to integrate it into our actions. I don't think it's enough to simply know what one... Uh, Cherishes. I think in some way we have to begin to prioritize it. So that's, that's the talk. And now we're actually going to do the practice. Um, so find a really comfortable position and... The idea is to, especially in a reflective meditation, to try to find that posture, that position that is the most conducive to ease. In general, a sense of balance, a sense of uprightness is helpful. So uh, when you close your eyes, feel into your body and just, you can, if you want, rock left and right, back and forth a little bit, just to, and then allow your body to come to a stop. 
and gently, if it feels right, tilt your head slightly back so that up and back, like you're looking at a very tall building, and uh, so your chin gently lifts a little bit, and that prevents slouching. Slouching is very much the uh, one postural uh, event to avoid. It creates a lot of tension and it makes it very easy to sort of drift off into a state of numbness. So we're going to first try to cultivate that feeling of, uh, as I like to say, arriving in life, landing in life. Those rare moments where we reach a destination and we're really so completed in this arrival at this destination. There's no sense of needing to think about anything in the future. There's no need to do anything that sense of when you find the perfect remote beach spot and you finally drop all the the beach chairs and the blankets and uh, whatever else you're carrying and you just roll out the blanket or put out the chair and you just sit down and you don't have anything else you need to do. You just truly arrive in that moment and you give yourself permission to really bask in the senses around you. That feeling of having nothing to do, nowhere to go, and definitely no one that we need to take care of or um, worry about or perform for. So we can, in this time, just totally ease into being whatever we need to be naturally. Whatever we need to experience. And one of the ways we know that we're, we've landed is there's a sense of the body completely releasing into this moment. All the tension begins to release. So let's take a nice... In-breath through the nose like you're smelling a flower and lift your shoulders up if you like, just like you're trying to touch your ears. And then breathe out through the mouth like you're blowing out a candle and drop your shoulders. And if it feels right for you, only if it feels right, gently pull your shoulders a little back so that it opens up your chest. That tones the vagal vagus nerve, sends a message up to the insula and the amygdala telling us that we're safe, we can relax. And let's take a second in-breath through the nose, breathing in the flower, holding in the belly, tucking in the abdominal muscles, contracting them. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, softening your belly, and just see if you can receive the breath from here on in that really soft belly. 
And for the third breath, squinching the muscles in the face as you breathe in through the nose, a tight, pinched, ugly little face, the eyes are tight, the nose is tight, the jaw is locked, and then as you breathe out, just relax. With your mind, give your face a little massage, softening the micro-muscles around the eyes, the jaw, the brow, just creating a great deal of ease. So we've just addressed two core areas of the vagal nerve, and that's the way you speak to the emotional brain, the right brain. Relaxing the breath, softening the body. So for a while, we're just going to sit and try to be aware of whatever is going on in this moment, not adding anything to it. So what is going on are the sounds arriving from the street below, the sirens and car horns and the sounds of street activity. There's the light flickering behind closed eyelids, closed eye visuals, as it were. There are various flickering physical sensations of the body, a little bit like Stars flickering in a night sky, just little sensations that we're aware of in the body. And then there's that overall sense of the body breathing in, the expansion like a river, the water lifting a boat up, and then as we exhale, the release, the waves receding, the boat lowering or the gentle rocking back and forth of a boat with the tides and the waves. So just see if you can surf on these sensations, the sounds, the breath, the lights flickering behind the eyelids. And what will happen is when we begin to tune out a lot of the world around us in terms of sight, the mind will try to take advantage of that and add something to this present moment. And in terms of thoughts, memories, mental images that we create of 
some other place. So don't visualize or get caught up in thoughts. If they're there, don't push them away. Just note them like cars passing on a highway, but your job is just to stay present, not to follow those cars and imagine where they're heading to. If you do get caught up by a thought or memory, no worries. That's not at all bad. It's nothing to... in any way get frustrated or impatient by. In fact, when you notice that your mind has wandered, it's more of a cause for celebration. And that it means that you're becoming increasingly aware And so just use that as an opportunity to gently bring your awareness back to what's actually happening right here and now. And when you return to the sounds and the waves of the breath, just reward yourself with a really soothing full in-breath and once again relaxing the shoulders and the belly softening over and over any areas in the the body that grow tense. And just enjoy what it feels like to reach a time in life when we can rest and be present.
So we're going to start this part of the meditation with the Buddha's five daily recollections. Part of the reflective process in the Buddha's path is for practitioners to remember or recite the five daily recollections that remind us of our mortality, our fragility, so that we will be inclined to reflect on what gives life meaning and makes it worthwhile. And they are reminding oneself that we are subject to aging, sickness, death, that all that is dear we will be separated from, and all that really matters are the actions that we undertake. In the end, all we own are the choices that we make. So we'll start with the five daily recollections. In your mind, you can repeat or just listen to them. I am of the nature to grow old. I am subject to aging. I am of the nature to become sick. I am subject to illness. I am of the nature to die. I am subject to death. I will be separated from all that I hold dear. All that I really own are my actions. They are what defines me. They are what defines my life. Bringing awareness to the sensation of breathing again. The movement of 
expansion and contraction, perhaps in the chest. And as you observe the body breathing, just reflect, this breath could be my last. One day this body will breathe no more. This breath could be my last. One day this body will breathe no more. And now bearing this in mind, Ask yourself, when have I been happiest in my life? And just allow whatever image or thought comes up, don't edit it, don't overthink it, just allow whatever naturally, spontaneously appears. When have I been happiest in my life? And just note whatever comes to mind. Don't judge it or evaluate it. Just know from this perspective, from this moment, when have you been happiest? Just know whatever arises. And now, a second question. What choices am I proudest of? What decisions have I made in my life that I now feel the proudest of? And again, just allow whatever The deepest recesses of the mind answer, just allow that to be for now your truth. What choices do I feel proudest of? What skills that I've acquired or activities that I engage in bring the greatest fulfillment, 
Again, don't overthink it, just whatever arises, note. And now holding in mind, however you've answered the question, what makes, what has made me happiest, what choices do I feel the greatest, pride, what activities or skills have brought me the greatest fulfillment, knowing whatever has been the answer, whatever has appeared, ask yourself, am I living in line? With these priorities, have I held these Always in my awareness, have I always kept them close? Are my choices always integrating these insights into my decisions? Am I living the life I want to live? And if there's any discrepancy, what or how should I make some subtle adjustment, setting an intention, no matter how small, to weigh these truths into our choices, to set an intention to move towards that which brings us esteem, fulfillment, purpose, happiness. And so, in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl and take your time. When you hear the sound, just lift your gaze enough to look at the ground in front of you. Integrate sight into this embodied awareness. Don't push aside whatever you've 
come to discern from this practice, hold it with you, bring it with you into the rest of your evening.